0: Morning. Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, the 26th of February, 2024. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers for today are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. Here's Carol with our first story.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Food will return to Stump Box Brewing Food is coming back to Stump Box Brewing in Davenport the popular spot at 210 East River Drive downtown once shared a space with the restaurant Kitchen Brigade at the start of the year Kitchen Brigade announced brig, yeah Kitchen Brigade announced it was closing with the owner citing a need for more balance in my life and prioritized precious moments with family and friends. With the restaurant's last day being January 14th, Stompbox staff weighed their options and looked for other restaurants to bring in pretty much immediately. Stompbox manager Joe Runbeck said, not seeing what they were looking for, they took a leap in faith. We decided to just go for it, he said, the new eatery will feature traditional bar fare such as burgers, sandwiches, and thin crust pizza all on one tab now, Ronbeck said. Permits, equipment, and hiring are all in the works, but the new eatery is expected to open early this spring. Until then, Ronnebeck said, there's plenty of beer on tap. With the weather warming up, the patio will be open for guests too. And here is Jeff.
0: A One-Man Preservation Project Seed Saver Teacher Wins Nahant Award for Conservation Work Glenn Drowns has been growing heirloom vegetables, grains, and flowers on his small Clinton County farm for 35 years, carefully saving their seeds to protect their genetic information for future generations. At present, he maintains about 2,950 distinct plant varieties in his seed bank. He also preserves poultry, ducks, geese, turkeys, guineas, and chickens, raising some 220 breeds of heirloom stock in homemade sheds, not or some not tall enough for him to walk in, and open pens. As a seed and breed saver, Drown's has been literally the only force standing between certain plants and poultry and their extinction. Drowns also teaches junior high and high school science, instructing an estimated 1,000 students over a 40-year career in the Calamus uh, Wheatland Community School District. For these accomplishments and more, Drowns, 62, will receive the 2024 Oberholzer Award for present-day conservation leadership from Nahant Marsh Education Center in Davenport. The presentation will be Saturday, March 9th during a Nahant uh, fundraiser at the Bend Event Center in East Moline. The award is named for Ernest Oberholzer, who lived from 1884 to 1977, a Davenport native, explorer, author, and champion for the protection of natural areas in northern Minnesota. In addition to the category of present-day conservation, awards will be presented for past and future, that's students, leadership. The, The purpose is to recognize individual efforts in protecting the natural world, to promote awareness, and to inspire others to action. Drowns is a was a pioneer in preserving food diversity years before that idea became mainstream. He sometimes has been, and continues to be, regarded as a nutcase, or not very normal, to use his own words, for his continued passionate commitment. Nowadays, more people are aware that genetic diversity is being lost, and, with the consolidation of agriculture, there are fewer varieties of food seeds than previously. This is dangerous for humanity because if major varieties of wheat seeds, for example, were to be wiped out by disease, hunger would follow. Drowns began by storing seeds in glass jars on shelves in a room of his one-story house. In time, he built another home for living because the seeds squeezed him out filling floor-to-ceiling shells in every room and five chest freezers in the basement. As for poultry, a lot of breeds died out in the 1980s, Drowns said, and it turned into a situation where I was compelled to try to save those breeds. In 1995, Drowns had the only flock of partridge Chanticleer chickens in the United States. Now they are carried by a couple of major hatcheries, he said. This has lightened the burden, he feels, but still, every so often, he'll get a letter from someone with a rare flock that they can no longer maintain, asking him if he can take them. He has no choice but to say yes. In her 2012 book, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food, Janice Ray sought out and talked to seed savers across the United States. She described Drowns as perhaps the most famous folk seed saver and plant breeder of our time. You have to hear the numbers to truly understand the dedication of Glenn to the diversity of food, Ray writes. He has single handedly rescued poultry breeds from extinction. Add to that the nearly 3,000 varieties of corn, squash, tomato, sweet potato, and other vegetables, and the numbers are mind-boggling, she writes. Drown's work has earned him a national reputation in conservancy circles. In 1999, he won the Significant Achievement Award from the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy based in North Carolina. Uh the another part of Drown's work is sharing genetic diversity through a mail order seed and chick business. Yes, young chicks can be sent through the United States mail. My goal is to get as many unique things in the hands of people who will benefit from them, he told author Ray. <clears throat> He plans plants, harvests, and packages all his seeds by hand. but the labor involved in that pales in comparison to keeping up with the poultry. First, there are living animals that must be fed and watered twice daily, beginning at 4:30 am during the school year. Then, as the eggs are laid, drowns collects them, marks them by breed, candles them to, by holding them up to a light to determine whether they are fertile, and places them in one of several antique incubators he has refurbished. Hatching season runs from March to mid-October. When the chicks emerge, he puts them in corrugated boxes and mails them to customers. He is so knowledgeable about poultry that when editors for Massachusetts-based Story Publishing were looking for someone to write a how-to guide, they contacted Drowns. The result was a 450-page tome published in 2012. During this 2023-24 school year, Drowns is teaching eight unique classes, physical science, chemistry, advanced chemistry, anatomy and physiology, physics, and college environmental science, and two semesters of college biology. Yes, my teaching schedule's crazy, but there's a shortage of science teachers, and I just couldn't stand letting three classes go online, especially since I'd had many of their parents, he said. High school principal Andrea Wood Howard said Drowns had a profound impact on students because he involves them in very hands-on learning and lab work. He doesn't do a lot of tests. He has them do projects to show their learning, Howard said. I try to influence many people as many people as I can, Drowns told author Ray. I tell people, agriculture doesn't have to be the way it is. There's a way to farm that's not destructive. Maybe that's why I'm here. Drowns began his unique brand of farming in 1988, when he bought a 40-acre property west of Grand Mound, Iowa. At the time, just 23 acres of the land were tillable, and the place was regarded as junk property, covered with sand burrs and horse nettle. I thought, wow, this is perfect, Drownes said. Drownes named his property Sandhill Preservation Center because the soil is mostly highly erodible sand. He called it a preservation center because that is what he wanted to do there, preserve heirloom seeds and breeds of poultry. He's done that, and in the process, something else happened. The property lost its junk status. With repeated applications of compost, manure, and green manure, the sandy soil has evolved into something resembling rich, fertile loam. By leaving some acres untilled, native prairie has reasserted itself and stands of trees have taken root. Both support a diversity of birds with warblers, indigo buntings, meadowlarks, killdeer, and even wild turkeys spotted on a regular basis. To warrant this, Drown's did nothing, he said. Nature found a way. In addition to the fields planted in heirloom vegetables, grains, and flowers, Drowns maintains a 96-tree orchard with pears, apples, apricots, and a few persimmons. Explaining the breadth of what Drowns does in a given day invites disbelief. He He gets invaluable help from his wife, Linda, and hires seasonal labor at crunch times, but mostly it's just him in nearly perpetual motion. Accepting the award will mean a rare pause. Carol, back to you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Um, For those of you who live in the state of Illinois, digital driver's licenses are proposed. An Illinois lawmaker is gaining momentum in his latest attempt to implement digital identification cards and driver's licenses. Now with the support of Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Giannopolis, Gian, Giannolis, Jollius, whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Representative Cam Buckner's uh, a Democrat from Chicago, latest bill, House Bill Number 4592, would allow the Secretary of State to issue a mobile ID or mobile driver's license, known as MDL, to Illinois residents. Buckner introduced the bill on January 31st, but it remains in the Gatekeeping House Rules Committee. While Buckner has been seeking to implement a version of the measure since 2019, this is the first time it has also included both digital IDs and driver's licenses. And crucially, it is the first time that the Secretary of State's office has backed the initiative. This is important because one of the office's primary responsibilities is issuing licenses to Illinois drivers. Buckner said this legislation would continue to help the Secretary of State's office modernize the services it offers to Illinois residents. I know that change is hard and change is different, but it is important that we have, technologically, advanced in a way that puts us on par with our counterparts around the country, Buckner said. Illinois would join 12 other states already offering mobile licenses if Buckner's bill passes, including Iowa, Missouri, and Maryland. At least 18 other states are currently working toward implementing this program as well. I'm excited about this technology, Secretary of State Alexei Giannolis told Lee Enterprises in an interview. Our smartphones have become a convenience place, convenient place to store movie tickets, boarding passes, and credit cards. So the time is right for Illinoisians to introduce the option of carrying a digital version in their driver's license. I would tell you that I don't view this as a standalone, he continued. I think it's a a companion, not a replacement, but I think it's more secure. If the legislation passes and it's signed into law, Illinois residents would have the option to receive the digital copy of their ID or driver's license. Their legislation makes it clear that the digital version is not a replacement for the physical copy and also requires the state to abide by standards of the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators. The association is a nonprofit organization that develops model programs in motor vehicle administration, law enforcement, and highway safety and represents various United States and Canadian officials who administer and enforce motor vehicle laws. Gianolis said that his office would begin working out the technology, the vendor, and the more specific details of how the process would work in Illinois if the bill was passed and signed into law. If the bill does pass, Giannullis' office will issue a request for proposals. Michael McCaskill, AAMVA Identity Management Director, said the timeline for implementing digital IDs could range from three months to over a year, depending on the circumstances in each state. Since Illinois is still early on in the process, Giannullis' office said it would take about a year to have them ready. McCaskill said costs for the process and for digital IDs varied for states as well. Giannullis' office said that if there were to be a cost for digital IDs, it would be nominal. Geoanalysis' goal with Illinois' program is to have the mobile license available in an app, but those plans are still fluid as well. States that have the program are still required to issue the physical copy for identity presentation purposes. Those who opt for the digital version would still have to carry their physical copy with them in certain instances, like driving or traveling to states that have not implemented the program yet. This requirement is due to standards set into place that make physical IDs the basis for those identity and authentication purposes. There should not be an issue where a person only has a digital credential because every state has a law that says you must carry your physical credential on you at all times, McCaskill said. So in general, a person should not be without their physical credential. If they have an MDL and they walk into an establishment where they need to prove identity and that establishment cannot accept the MDL and doesn't, they use their physical card just like they would any other time. McCaskill said AAMVA had a working group to create and build these standards for states that had started issuing or were in the process of getting MDLs issued to residents. States then go on to adopt these requirements and set those standards within their own jurisdiction as they begin that implementation process. In Maryland, for instance, airports allow people to use their mobile license to board flights. People in these settings are able to show only their most relevant information on their mobile licenses to authorities rather than showing all their information on their physical ID. For example, If an individual were to go through a TSA checkpoint or try to get into a bar, they can choose to present only the information needed, like a name and date of birth, rather than everything else listed on their ID, such as their home address. From there, the authorities checking that information will go through its electronic verification process to confirm that information. Christy Neisser, Motor Vehicle Administration Administrator for Maryland Department of Transportation, said this privacy component with mobile licenses was a huge benefit to people because they were able to limit whatever information they did not need to be sharing in these types of situations. Neisser said, One of the nice things about MDL is it's always in your control. You have to initiate the action and indicate that you are comfortable sharing your data in the case with TSA, but with whoever you're interacting with. Maryland was among the first states to offer the digital product through Apple Wallet, and it's the first state to offer it to residents through Google Wallet. The state's Department of Transportation has been providing access to the Apple version since 2022 and to the Android version since last year. Nizer's office said Maryland had a total of 204,710 active customers enrolled in its Maryland's mobile DLID program as of Wednesday. Her office also reports there's been a total of 223,902 downloads on mobile phones and smartwatches. There are 4.3 million licensed drivers in the state, meaning about 5% participate in the program. While states like Maryland have seen a lot of success with their programs, McCaskill said the one, that one of the biggest challenges for AAMVA and these states during this process is educating state officials and residents about what mobile drivers' licenses are and the privacy components that come with them. McCaskill said the AAMVA had assisted states in the creation of that education, whether it be presentation or documents, and supported these states in their efforts to implement mobile driver's license solutions and update relying parties on these changes. The organization attends conferences around the globe to educate these parties as well. McCaskill said the challenge was that it's a brand new topic. This is something that's not been done ever on the globe, McCaskill said. As you can imagine, anything that's brand new can take a lot of education for people to trust it if illinois joins these states in issuing this technology gianola said businesses and driver services facility can expect his office to offer that education in addition to other necessary tools that would help with the transition such as technology tutorials and counseling Giannola said his office would not be pursuing this if it weren't about the security and efficiency factors. For him, the move to issue mobile licenses represents a growing trend across the country that allows and uses more fraud-resistant technology in everyday life. Giannola said this is the future. It's all part of the modernization of the office. This is a companion to the driver's license that we want people to know that we will do this with security in mind, the safety of our roads and the safety of data in the forefront. Jeff?
0: News from Henry County. Board delays migrant action. Henry County board members removed an item from Thursday's agenda about a migrant resolution, instead returning the matter to committee for more information before taking action. Effingham and Grundy counties have recently passed measures to make it difficult for migrants coming out of state, coming from out of state, to receive locally funded services, while the McLean County Board voted against such a prohibition. Henry County Board member Dale Stiles complained that a resolution would have no teeth to it. He said, with Interstate 80 running right through the county, It's possible busloads of migrants could be dumped here. What are we going to do with them, he said. A resolution is nice. It makes us feel good. But we need to have an action plan, he said. Board Chairman Kippy Breeden said Matt Schneppel, Director of the Office of Emergency Management, had a plan. Schneppel said policies had been in effect since October. We're not looking forward to the time, but we're prepared for the time, he said. In other business, the board voted 16 to nothing to spend $59,000 on courthouse window replacement design that would be the preliminary step to acquiring bids for actual window replacement. There are 130 windows in the old courthouse and 75 in the newer judicial center. Administration Committee Chairman Jill Darren said some of the windows in the Judicial Center were leaking. Board member Kathy Nelson said she recalled replacing a lot of windows years ago, but Breeden said the windows the county put in were not quality windows and they are deteriorating. Finance Chairman Mark Burton said he didn't think the work would be done this year, but whenever it is done, the money will come from the general fund surplus, which he termed pretty big. Board member David Dobles said the water it was leaking into the law library 22 years ago when he was a board member, and a patchwork repair failed, so another patchwork repair was done. He said, we can't allow rainwater to come into these facilities. The board also approved a $50,000 rural revolving loan for Vibrant Chiropractic Health Center of Cambridge, which is purchasing Burke's Chiropractic Center of Geneseo. The separate primary lender is loaning $350,000 for the purchase, which will see the business retain all its current employees. Eddie Tolliver of the Salvation Army gave a report on the board, to the board on how his organization is using the $34,256 that the county granted it in the American Plan Rescue Act funding. 14 community organizations were granted funding in October of 2022. Tolliver said the biggest need was for help with utilities and housing, and his organization spent $10,336 on utility for people in need.
1: Carol? And um, Fire Destroys Rock Island Livestock Auction. This- Couple nice pictures here of the destruction. Rock Island firefighters continue Sunday to pour water onto the remaining structure and contents from a large fire that broke out Saturday at the former Rock Island Livestock Auction. The fire destroyed the barn, which was owned and being used by Lathrop Livestock Transportation after the auction closed in 2015. And a little bit on the national news here. Haley stays in the race despite loss in South Carolina. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says, "It's not the end of our story. Despite Donald Trump's easy primary victory in South Carolina, her home state, where the one-time governor had long suggested her competitiveness with the former president would show, defying calls from South Carolina Republicans to exit the race, Haley traveled Sunday to Michigan, which holds its primary on Tuesday. In the less than 24 hours following her Saturday night loss to Trump, Haley's campaign said she had raised $1 million from grassroots supporters alone. A bump, they argued, demonstrates Haley's staying power and her appeal to broad swaths of the American public. But with Sunday also came the end of support for Haley's campaign from Americans for Prosperity, the political arm of the powerful Koch network. In a memo first reported by Politico and obtained by the Associated Press, AFP Action Senior Advisor Emily Seidel wrote, While the group stands firm behind our endorsement of Haley, it would focus our resources where we can make the difference, redirecting and spending toward U.S. Senate and House campaigns and away from Haley's presidential bid. AFP Action endorsed Haley's campaign in November. In addition to the rally in Vote Rich Oakland County, Michigan, northwest of Detroit on Sunday evening, She scheduled a Monday event in Grand Rapids, a western Michigan suburb. And uh, from the Digest, um, from um, Italy, Pope Francis. Pope Francis was well enough on Sunday to celebrate his weekly Angelus prayer from his Vatican window overlooking St. Paul Square a day after canceling his engagements because of a mild flu. In his address, Francis remembered with sorrow the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And let's see, maybe one more quick one here. Um, uh, Serbia on Sunday sent a protest note after Croatia's foreign minister described President Alexander Vucek as a Russian satellite in the Balkans. And um, I think now we shall go back to Jeff for the obituaries.
0: One obituary and several <clears throat> uh, pending notices in today's Quad City Times. The obituary for Peggy L. Ratcliffe, September 17, 1928, to February 23, 2024. Peggy L. Ratcliffe, age 95, of Davenport, passed away on February twenty third at Silvercrest. Cremation rights have been accorded per her wishes. Committal service will take place at Rock Island National Cemetery on Wednesday... February 28th, at 2 p.m. Please arrive at Wirtz Funeral Home by one forty-five p.m. if you wish to join the procession to the cemetery. Memorials may be made to Genesis Hospice Care, and online condolences may be expressed at wirtzfh.com. Peggy was born September 17th, 1928, to Merle and Hazel Peg Jackson in Fulton, Illinois. Peggy graduated from Fulton High School in 1946. She worked part-time as a beautician for 30 years. Peggy was an avid card player and was a member of CASI. She enjoyed traveling with friends all over the country. Peggy survived by her children, Gary and spouse Judy Allen, Sherry and spouse Daniel Enderly, Randy Allen, and Mark Allen, sister Dorothy Eisenberg, five grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. She's preceded in death by her husband, William Allen, her parents, two brothers, and one sister.
1: And um, pending funerals, we have several... The first is for Raymond J. Ewalt Jr., 86 of Davenport, Iowa, who passed away Friday, February 23, 2024, at Davenport Lutheran Home. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of the Quad Cities. Sandra Nones Sue Larson, 87 of Silvis, Illinois, passed away Friday, February 23, 2024, at home. Arrangements are pending at Schroeder. Mortuary in Silvis. Ruth L. Letcher, 87, of Fulton, Illinois, passed away Wednesday, February 21, 2024, at Addington Place of Clinton in Clinton, Iowa. Arrangements are pending at Bosma Renke's Funeral Home in Fulton. Stephen Wayne Loti, 74, of East Malloyne, Illinois, passed away Thursday, February 22, 2024, at home. Arrangements are pending at Estradal Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline William J McCoy 82 of Milan Illinois passed away Friday February 23 2024 at home cremation will be directed by Missouri Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in Moline Brenda Joyce Poor 73 of Moscow Iowa passed away Thursday, February 22, 2024, at home. Arrangements are pending at Bentley Funeral Home in Wilton. Daryl Randolph, 90, of Silvis, Illinois, passed away Thursday, February 22, 2024, at home. Arrangements are pending at Schroeder Mortuary in Silvis. And our final notice is for Ivan Van Amaren, 87, of DeWitt, Iowa. He passed away Wednesday, February 21st, 2024, at Philstone of DeWitt. Arrangements are pending at Schultz Funeral Home in DeWitt. Now we'll go back to Jeff.
0: Turning now to the opinion section of today's Quad City Times <clears throat> Immigration Answers is the subject, um, these two opinion pieces are accompanied by uh, an a editorial cartoon which shows the Statue of Liberty, a rather confused and dismayed look on her face, standing behind what appears to be a section of border wall with her arm, the her torch arm raised, but all surrounded with razor wire, which is representing the dilemma of liberty versus security, as noted in these two opinion pieces. The first, Biden has the power to fix the border crisis. This was authored by David McCormick, who is a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. After three years and millions of illegal crossings by immigrants, President Joe Biden's failed leadership has allowed America's southern border to spiral into a humanitarian, national security, and economic crisis of epic proportions. Mexican drug cartels are profiting by funneling migrants into America. It's a situation ripe for exploitation, with women and children subject to sex trafficking The chaos has helped these cartels flood the United States with deadly drugs such as fentanyl, fueling a rise in overdoses. In 2023, Border Patrol agents said they intercepted enough lethal doses of fentanyl to kill every American. Customs and Border Protection officials told Fox News that large groups of migrants are creating a distraction for cartels to move contraband. These migrants aren't coming just from Central and South America. Thousands of single adult males from Africa and Asia are flocking to our border. More than 160 individuals on the terrorist watch list were caught last year trying to enter the country. In Pennsylvania, the effects of Biden's loose border policies are devastating. In 2022, the state lost thousands of residents to dangerous drugs. Cities such as Philadelphia are diverting taxpayer dollars to handle the influx and cover health care, schooling, housing, and food for undocumented immigrants. This debacle lies at the feet of President Biden and Democratic senators such as Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, whom I plan to challenge in the fall election. Just go back to Biden's first day in office. The, Biden isu- uh, the president issued an executive order halting the construction of the border wall. He also reinstated the failed policy of catch and release and ended the practice of keeping asylum seekers in Mexico. When things began to spiral out of control, Biden refused to acknowledge the situation at the border was a crisis or change course. Biden now says he's ready to take a tough stance, but nothing suggests this is more than a cynical election year ploy. The the path Biden chose has been disastrous. Reversing former President Donald Trump's border initiatives, which successfully brought illegal immigration to its lowest level in 45 years, Biden sent a signal to the world that our country was wide open. By opening the floodgates, the White House created a preventable tragedy. What have Democrats done in response? During his 18-year career in Washington, Casey enabled weak immigration policies that made the American people less safe and hurt our economy. Since Biden used the presidency's power to put us in this mess, Biden can use those same powers to fix it. The White House must restore the Trump policies that worked. Biden should use every existing authority to finish constructing the border wall, direct customs and border protection to enforce all border laws, and terminate the ill-conceived smart form asylum Act. Biden should stop catch and release, which releases migrants into American communities while waiting for hearings. Biden should keep asylum seekers in Mexico. Congress can and should do more. But the proposed border deal, while well-intentioned, isn't the answer. The legislation would codify a minimum level of illegal immigration. It also would encourage more migrants to flood the border by empowering unelected bureaucrats to dole out work permits or immediately grant asylum claims without proper oversight. Finally, there's no guarantee Biden would enforce any new authorities granted to him, which is significant. Biden should work with the House on additional bills to supplement administrative action. But none of the actions I've proposed require new legislation. They require leadership. The President says he's serious about fixing the border. It's time for him to back up those words with action. Carol?
1: Thank you Jeff. And our second oh, op- opinion for today <clears throat> excuse me folks, is entitled "Congress Must Embrace the Vitality of Newcomers." Um, it has two authors, uh, Lindsay Kashgarian, who directs the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, and Aliyah lucegro um who is outreach coordinator. Here's what they had to say. Immigrants are good for this country. They work critical jobs, pay taxes, build businesses, and introduce many of our favorite foods and cultural innovations. Donuts, anyone? But for decades, powerful players have chosen the self-serving politics of division over sensible immigration policies. The immigrant experience is essential to the American story. Our communities include many who come here to seek safety, work, study, and join their families. They make the United States a strong, diverse nation. Immigrants were more likely to be essential workers during the pandemic, and they can fill crucial roles in the future. As America's population ages, more of us will need home health care a workforce that's one-fourth immigrant and needs to grow fast to meet need. The Congressional Budget Office projects that immigration could increase our country's economy $7 trillion over 10 years. We need immigration. And many of us know this, with 68% of respondents saying immigration is good for the country, according to a Gallup poll last year. Yet, our government has made it much harder and more punitive for immigrants in recent decades to claim their rights to a dignified future. Detention centers, deportations, and walls can be deadly, inhumane, and tear families apart. We spend untold billions on these cruelties, according to the National Priorities Project, and these policies do not deter many people from leaving their home countries for freedom, safety, or opportunity. Yet we continue responding to the, quote, problem of people seeking refuge here by doubling down on these false solutions. All of us, new immigrants and descendants of old ones, are stuck in this policy limbo because of powerful people who benefit from dividing us and preventing real solutions. From politicians who win office with anti-immigrant campaigns to white supremacists who peddle racist conspiracy theories and corporations that rely on undocumented workers to keep wages low and deny workers' rights, these people stoke fear about immigrants to divide us for their own gain. In reality, immigrants commit fewer crimes, according to Stanford University research, They also do critical jobs that most Americans don't want, according to a Pew Research Center polling. The border policy recently proposed by the Senate isn't a real solution. It's a threat. The so-called border compromise would have gutted the asylum system, ramped up mass surveillance and enforcement, and invested in pointless and harmful border wall. That proposal is not the best we can do. A real solution to immigration would be to embrace immigration, which makes us stronger. It would open up paths to legalization and citizenship for immigrants who've been contributing to this country for years, and for many of those who are making the trip now. Our government also must address the real reasons that scores of people are leaving their homes. This includes the U.S. economic sanctions, that are strangling their home economies. It includes the war on drugs that can make migrants' home communities unlivable. Climate change has created weather that sends millions fleeing. Congress has made real progress before and can do it again. The 1986 immigration law signed by President Ronald Reagan granted legalization to millions of undocumented immigrants. President George W. Bush supported a proposal that would have led to legalizations for millions more. Under President Barack Obama, the Senate passed a plan that would have opened the door to legalization for many of the current 11 million undocumented people living and working in the country. It's time to think bigger than the Senate's most recent doomed plan. Immigrants have also kept this country moving forward. We should embrace the vitality and diversity that immigration can bring, refuse to be divided by those who want to scare us, and enact some genuine immigration reform. Jeff?
0: Turning now to sports. Here's what's uh, on television today. Uh, Australian Rules Football starts in the middle of the night tonight on FS2. Uh, there's college baseball game on the Pac-12 Network at four o'clock, San Jose State at Stanford. Basketball, Drexel at Delaware at five thirty on CBS Sports. Miami at North Carolina at six on ESPN, and same time, uh, West Virginia at Kansas State on ESPN two. At seven thirty, UNC Wil- Wilmington at Campbell. On CBS Sports and at eight, Baylor at TCU on ESPN. Women's basketball, Colorado at UCLA at eight o'clock on ESPN two. There's a golf match, a twelve hole skins game between uh, Royal Mac, Rory McIlroy and Lexi Thompson against Zhang and Homa. That's on TBS at six. NBA basketball, uh, six o'clock Toronto at Indiana, and and at nine o'clock Miami at Sacramento, both on NBA TV. Hockey, the New York Islanders at Dallas on NHL TV at seven o'clock. Baseball spring training already yes, Minnesota at the New York Yankees at noon on MLB Network and soccer. At 7:45 uh, a.m., there was a Saudi League game. 10:45, there was uh, began as another Saudi League game Al-Wadah at Al-Ittihad. 11:30, at uh, Serie A, Torino at Roma. That's on CBS Sports. And at two o'clock, Premier League Brentford at West Ham. Back to you, Carol.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Um, I will class 5A girls basketball, Davenport North. Down one. Wildcats keep forging on. A stinging irony faces the Davenport North High School girls basketball team. The Wildcats will be tipping off their second straight state quarterfinal game on Monday, taking on Cedar Falls in the third class 5A quarterfinal quarterfinal game at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines at 1:30 between home and Des Moines junior all-stater Journey Houston will be in Iowa City having surgery on her injured left knee Houston the University of Iowa commit was such a key component through the Wildcats first 17 games and settling up for them an undefeated Mississippi and setting up for them an undefeated Mississippi Athletic Conference title After her injury, she was still a valuable member of the team, doing what she could to help from the bench with her knee in a brace. North coach Paul Rucker, ahead of his team heading to Des Moines on Sunday, said, that's a crazy dynamic because we're going to be thinking about her, and we feel for her situation. She's going to have surgery on Monday, and it's going to go great, and she's going to get healthy, and we're going to have her back. Next season, for the rest of us, we're going to carry on Monday, and I think about and think about her, and then go and play the best basketball we can play. Rucker wasn't quite sure of Monday's timetable, but thought the Houston would be out of surgery before the second-seeded Wildcats, who are twenty-two and two, and seventh-seeded Cedar Falls Tigers, who are twenty-two and one, tip off in the third quarterfinal at one thirty p.m. at the Well. Rucker said hopefully she can be out of anesthesia and can watch online. Houston was a catalyst to North's success through 17 games before hurting her knee in an MAC win at Muscatine. Since then, she has thrived in her new role as coach cheerleader on the bench in every game through last Tuesday's 53-40 sub-state championship victory over Cedar Rapids, Washington. North senior Kira Tyler calling Houston the big talker said, she has still been such a huge part of this team, still, the wildcats have shown a resolve to keep battling and bucking the odds, using a rotation of basically six players. North has kept on winning. It wouldn't be fair to say it's been business as usual, but it has been business like Fellow junior divine Borage, of her said of her missing running mate, "I'm going to say it's hard." but everybody's picking up a role to help take her her place, and that's special. Rucker appreciates the focus his team has shown since Houston's injury and not letting that detract from a special season. This group all the way around, Journey, her family, our kids, have all done a really good job of getting to the next great thing and having great attitudes and carrying on because that's what you do. As for Monday's meeting with a dangerous bunch of Tigers, Rucker is optimistic. He said, well, I think we match up well with them from what I've seen on film. Of course, they're 22-1, and and we're going to have to mind our P's and Q's. We'll have to stay out of foul trouble. That's going to be the big one. You know, when you get on the big stage on the big floor, it's going to be who settles in first and gets in a groove. He hopes that with Burridge and Taylor having experienced the state tournament last year, will help settle the Wildcats into a normal contest, or as normal as it can be, without one of their main players. Jeff?
0: Another story about the uh, girls' 5A basketball tournament with another regional team featured, Pleasant Valley. The Spartans are ready for their title defense. Uh, Pleasant Valley faces Dowling Catholic in Des Moines. No pressure, no expectations, no worries. Entering Monday's Class 5A Iowa High School, uh, Girls High School Athletic Union quarterfinals as the number six seed, the Pleasant Valley girls basketball team goes into Wells Fargo Arena with a fresh perspective. The defending state champions really don't have anything to lose as they start their title defense against number 3 Dowling Catholic, which has an identical 19-4 and four mark. Dowling is supposed to beat us, right? We're not supposed to win the first game, said PV coach Jennifer Goetz. I like that underdog role. I think it fits this group perfectly. Last year had such a different weight to it when you're the number one seed and undefeated. This year, we'll do our best to prove that number six is pretty good and do our best to control that side of it. The Spartans bring plenty of experience back to the well this season. Three top juniors in Reagan Pagnano, Quinn Weiss, and Eddie Maurer, along with senior Jesse Clemens. Those key contributors are looking forward to the chance to make it it two in a row, even while facing the task of being the defending state champs. Some people would think it is, but not for us, said Pagniano, of the added responsibility of defending the crown. I don't think we feel it, said Maurer, of the pressure. We're just ready for anyone, said Weiss. We're just going to play how we play, and whatever happens, happens. If we focus on ourselves, the scoreboard will take care of itself, said Maurer. If that scoreboard gets a workout on Monday, it's a great question. While both teams average at least 60 points per game this season, their defenses have been stingy. Dowling allows just 40.4 points per game. The Spartans only giving up 30. We just have to play our game and make shots, said Pagnano of the PV Keys. Our defense leads to offense, and we just have to have confidence we can knock down shots. Dowling is doing that from the three-point line at 40% clip this season, hitting 210 of 522 attempts. P.V. has attempted six more triples, 528, and made 177, a very respectable 33.5%. This is the third meeting between the two in 12 months. P.V. beat Dowling 50-33 in last year's state semifinals before nipping Johnston 59-56 in the title game. In their meeting earlier this season, Dowling was eight of twenty one on threes accompanied or compared to PV's four of eighteen shooting from deep. That was just one of the reasons the Maroons rallied from a thirteen to nothing first quarter deficit to win forty three thirty six. We're kind of familiar with them, admitted Vice. If we stick with the game plan, we should be okay. Another key was PV. Being outscored fifteen to two in the final frame of that earlier meeting, our fourth quarter was not very good, said Getz with a wry chuckle. I knew I know this group well enough that I know that burns a little bit. Getz likes the fact that this is a rematch game. I think it's good for us, said Getz. These girls are confident knowing they can play well against this team. It's a team that we know we played with and Played really badly against in the fourth quarter. We've improved since then. And the coach feels as if her squad is 100% playing its best ball of the season coming into the quarterfinals. Sometimes as a coach, you can't control everything, she said. What you can control is to put your kids in a position to be their best when the best is required. They were Tuesday night in a 52-43 sub-state victory over Waukee Northwest. Our goal is that we will get them to that on Monday, and then they'll shine. They'll do it. And if they reach the 20-win plateau on Monday, a familiar foe could be waiting in Thursday's semifinal. MAC champ Davenport North faces number no. 7 Cedar Falls on the other side of the bracket. We wish North nothing but the best, and it would be cool in that setting, said Getz of an all max semi. We're not looking to that second round at all. It may sound like a cliché, but it's honestly the truth. The players admit that as well. They say there's no looking ahead to a potential third meeting with North, just as they say there's no complacency having already won a state title in their careers. We're all hungry for more, said Pagnano. We're not satisfied having just made it to state. Everyone wants to win, no matter what. That brings us to the end of the Quad Cities Times for today. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been the wonderful Carol Lockhart.